Welcome to Meanwhile in Memphis, where New Memphis is celebrating our city by providing a weekly window into the ways Memphians are solving problems, looking forward, and successfully shaping the community. Good morning, Memphis. We are here with your weekly episode of Meanwhile in Memphis. My name is Anna Mullins-Ellis. I am here in the studio today with my friend and coworker, Anna Thompson. You've got a double Anna episode today. Anna, how are you? I am well. Um, A few weeks ago, I was in here with Christy as you enjoyed your much-needed PTO, and now she is doing the same. So again, we're just all rotating to the beach. Yes, we <laughs> highly encourage use your PTO people. Use it. it truly, truly. It's it's insane to me. People are like, I don't have time to take a vacation. I'm like, I don't have time not to take a vacation. No. Um, well, we have a packed episode today uh, in the studio with us today will be Ekendayo Bandelay. He is not only a an incredible artist in his own right, and he's going to talk a lot about his personal work and uh, but he's also the founder and and CEO of Hadaloo Theater, which is an incredible little gem here in Memphis. I say little. It's actually like quite a massive organization at this point. Um, and uh, a double, triple bonus. Um, he also gave a TED Talk back in 2018. So this is your uh, every once in a while TED-isode where we feature a TED Talk. I'm a huge fan of his TED Talk. Um, it's I I I like one of my like cheats when we are putting together a slate of TED speakers is like who is like an actor <laughs> like thespians make great uh, TED talkers because they obviously know how to work a stage so we will play that audio for you in this episode but I also strongly encourage you to go to tedxmemphis.com and you can find that TED talk and watch it because it is a beautiful piece of art as well um, so let's not delay shall we get into it yeah let's get started okay. All right, so we are here in the studio with Ekendayo Bandele, the founder and CEO of Hadaloo Theater. Ekendayo, thank you for being with us today. Oh, thank you. It's so good to see your eyes. I know. Like, <laughs> this is like, I was just saying, New Memphis is going to start like seeping back into the right, office in right. July, but this is like the one, like every two weeks, I get to see human beings <laughs> that I haven't seen in what now feels like many years. So it is right, such a warm right. delight. I'm so yeah. glad that you are here. Thank you for the invitation. Well, um, I don't want to jump immediately into like <laughs> what a challenging year this has been for yeah, local theater, yeah. but you know, I'm, I want to just sort of honor the reality that this has been, you know, I'm sure one of the more challenging years of your life as you've mm-hmm. considered um, continuing your work. So let's just start with like a gut check, check in. How are you doing? Yeah. How well, is your team doing? How's everybody, how has everyone weathered everything? Well, I'm doing quite well. Uh, my team is doing well as as well. And this actually wasn't a bad year I you love know, for, for me because it gave me a reset opportunity when I don't think I would have ever taken time to reset because I was just on this uh, constant escalator mm. of, you know, trying to move the theater upward and upward and upward. And it never stopped. You know, mm-hmm. and so that year, you know, which kind of started March 2020, you know, it took some time getting acclimated to. But after that, it, it, you know, I took advantage of it. But, you know, the gut check is I'm doing well. Um, the weather is finally turning in Memphis. I don't know if that's good or bad. You know, a few weeks ago. <laughs> it is indeed it was, summer, yes. <laughs> yeah, you know, a few weeks ago, you're in a sweater and you're like, hey, is is summer ever going to come? And then no spring and the sun just comes out and whack them here. 
But yeah, no, I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I have like a little bit of personal guilt because I know that this last year was like a very challenging year for many, but it was also for me like a really lovely like pause and what is like exactly. the go, go, go mentality. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've really carried that through into 2021. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I try to be quiet when I, when people are like this year and I'm like, yes, <laughs> I agree. It was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> like, I've like read so many books and taken so many yeah. long walks. Yeah. And, like, and you know what? There were um, horrible external things. Yes. But, and, you know, that I think we all, you know, saw and witnessed, but internally, and inside of my home, you know, we made the best of it. Good. You know? I love to hear that. <laughs> Thanks. Well, let's jump back in time just a little bit before we get into what's happening at Hadaloo now. Yeah. For anyone that is not familiar, tell us about Hadaloo Theater. Mm -hmm. And specifically, I love, I think it's like it has an incredible origin story. So yeah. talk a little bit about how this came to be uh -huh. and, and what it what its mission is. Yeah, well, um, I'll try to be as succinct as possible because it's a Don't long... Don't be succinct. Well, got, it is a This long is an hour-long radio show. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, it all started with me doing this um, kind of open mic thing at the... Uh, uh, Dan Oppenheimer's place over there on Hewling, um, Rainbow Studios. What else is it's 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 a stained glass place, mm. and it, it'll come to me in a minute. Anyway, I was doing on Thursday nights this open mic thing, and it was extremely eclectic. So you would have like some radical power to the people type of poets, and then you would have a blonde girl with flowers in her hair and a ukulele. <laughs> then you have a classical pianist. Then you have a nasty. Uh, comedian and so it was a real nice hodgepodge right and so the audience reflected that so there was this one guy named Michael DeCatani he actually has a Italian name but he was born and raised in in Eng no not England in Germany and we became fast friends and so one day he asked me if I wanted to integrate uh, Horseshoe Lake with him and so <laughs> he, he, he invited me on his pontoon he was like hey take your shirt off man let's shame him you know <laughs> and so my family and I went and it was uh, Michael and his wife and we got into a conversation about what what culturally was there to do um, for black people in Memphis and Michael at the time was involved with Playhouse in some capacity. He wasn't on the board, but he was in some way, you know, involved. And he knew I had a theater background. And so literally on that pontoon, he asked me if I wanted to start a black theater. And I didn't immediately come out at the opportunity and uh, went home and I asked my wife and we talked about it. And every Thanksgiving, we would drive from Memphis to Newport News, Virginia to spend Thanksgiving with our family. And so it's like a 14-hour drive. So we drove there and we just kind of kicked the ball around a little bit. But on the drive back, we took it seriously. And she brought out a notepad and I was using my imagination and she was writing things down. And then we were thinking of a name. It was like, okay, you know, now mind you, this is all daydreams. I'm 30 two at the time and so you know i'm an artist so i got all that stuff going on in my head and um both of our daughters have nicknames hattie who her name is hashepsit who named after the only woman who was a pharaoh in ancient egypt mm -hmm. and Love then it. um oluremi her nickname is lou she has a uh, yoruba name my name is yoruba from the uh, southern part of nigeria and so some kind of way she shouted at the girls and their names kind of melded 
And I was like, oh, man, you know, and it just stuck. And so I remember we were writing down various spellings of it, like H-A-T-T-I-E and then L-O-U and H-A-T, you know, just just playing around with it. Then when we got to that H-A-T-T-I-L-O-O, you know, with that double T and that double O at the end, it just made aesthetic sense, right? And so I came back and I told Michael, I was like, let's go for it. Now, mind you, this is November 2005. Wow. Michael and I went back and forth of whether we should be a for-profit or a not-for-profit. And of course, we landed on a not-for-profit. That December, I had a meeting at Otherlands with Jackie Nichols, who, you know, is the founder of Playhouse Mm -hmm. on the Square. And he challenged me. He said, ever since the Memphis Black Rep closed, there were all of these Black men and women coming to him saying they wanted to start a Black theater and no one had ever you know, done it. And so I was like, mm, challenge, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, so we can all think Jackie Nichols. <laughs> exactly, you know? And so by mid-December, we had a board. And uh, the board was uh, Michael Page Walkup now, Van Turner now commissioner, Lysandra Barksdale, Gideon Scoggin. Uh, I'm missing someone. Uh, oh, Michael. And so we had a board and we turned our paperwork in. But now this is like a year or two after Katrina. And so there were a lot of nonprofits being founded. Mm. And so the IRS was really bagged up on giving giving um, nonprofits their determination letter. And so we got it in in February. And so we were like, well, you know, it may take a while. Then I met our first donor, uh, Andrew Clarkson with the Genium Foundation. And interesting story. He, um, I showed up at his town home early, right? And so Charlotte King, um, his executive director, let me in. And he came downstairs and found me at the table a couple of minutes early. And he made notice of that. He was like, you're early. And I said, as is my habit. (laughs) And he said, you got $5,000. He said, every other nonprofit comes here and they're always late. And so I'm like, whoa, that was was easy, right? I I have to remember this. (laughs) I like this nonprofit thing, right? And so then he asked me the origin of the theater's name, Hattie Lou. And I told him. And his organization his foundation genium is jennifer and william his two kids i didn't know that yes wow another five grand right <laughs> so i left like out of there fundraising game show <laughs> you know so i left out of there with two thousand dollars but i couldn't spend it and so um i frequent this you know other in and in, in midtown and tanya meeks was there and she was then working for congressman Harold ford jr who was mm-hmm. running for senate and i told her my plight she took it to the congressman. We got our determination letter in like three weeks. Wow. So that's how we were founded. So the idea was planted summer 2005. We got our board in January 2006. We got our determination letter March 2006. We landed on a building There are a lot of stories in here that I'm jumping over, but that's okay, because we'll be here two days. And um, we got our building. uh, We rented a storefront in April 2006, opened 22nd of September 2006. And uh, 
just to tell you quickly, we had one bathroom, unisex bathroom, 66 seats. We opened on the 22nd of September, which is actually my birthday, not because it's my birthday, but because it was temperate because we didn't have heat and we didn't have air. <laughs> so for the Christmas show, people are sitting in their coats and fog is coming out of their mouth, you know. But uh, that's that is the origin of how we open. And here we are with 15th season around 16 years later. A lot of stuff in between there. But that's the origin you know, that, um, no, I mean, it's. A, yeah. I, I love the story for many reasons. I mean, to me, first and foremost, it is a very Memphis story mm-hmm. of, of just like somebody with a vision. And you know, I don't know. I w- we're often asked around here, like, why or we're asking people, like, why did you choose Memphis? Why uh-huh. this place? And that like, however you can distill that down into like a single statement is like, that's how like it is very much a um you can have a big idea here and you don't have to have like, but you're going to find your way. Like it's a big enough small town mm-hmm, <laughs> that you can mm-hmm. run into somebody at other lens or you, you found somebody that knows a congressman and you're like, great, exactly. I'm going to move this thing forward. And it's that passion that just really is obviously so present in, yeah. in the work that you guys are even doing today. So for somebody who is not familiar with Hadaloo and mm-hmm. what, you know, what you guys do. Oh yeah. So what, mission. Yes. What okay. So we, you know, we have a very simple mission to develop a black theater that is accessible to relevant to and reflective of a multicultural community. Boom. That is the whole mission, right? The key word in there is develop because developing a black theater isn't just about a stage, right? It is about an audience. Mm. It is about uh, donors. It is about actors, directors, scenic designers, kids interested in theater. Developing a black theater is, is a task that in a way you never are finished with. Because uh, you are constantly introducing people to black theater. What is black theater? That is actually a question that is bounced around a lot of black theaters and a lot of black thesbians. Um, uh, uh, Amiri Baraka during the black artist movement in the 60s said black theater is done by and for black people. Well, I never, you know, adhere to that because, yeah, it's done by, but not necessarily just for. You know, you're not going to give people a paper bag test. And if they're lighter than the paper bag, not sell them a ticket. Mm. And so it's for everybody. And so that is our mission. And so how we hit that mission, of course, was kind of unearthing individuals who had been doing black theater in the past and then training new people. Our thing is to open up the world of black life to all audiences. Uh, Sometimes people can see things as a monolith, you know, or um, just black and white. You know, there are black people on this side of the fence and that side of the fence and that's it. But uh, black life in America is very complicated. It isn't all protest. It isn't all rap. It isn't all jazz. It's, it's very complicated. And the, the impetus for certain um, actions done throughout history by black people is also very interesting. And so that's what we do. We tell those stories. And uh, sometimes people want to say, oh, stories are frivolous. And I remind people that we all end as stories. My father died in 96, but I still tell stories of him. One day, 100 years from now, hopefully my great-grandchildren will be telling stories about me. So everything ends as a story. And so therefore, stories are actually older than people. I love that. Um so for somebody who also might not know anything about you personally, mm-hmm. why theater? Why why showcase 
black representation in the form of a theater here in Memphis? Well, I didn't get interested in theater until college. And um, now, mind you, I didn't leave college with a BA. I left with an MRS. I'm going to let that sink in. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so um, I'm from Brooklyn, and so I, I'm a rapper. That's what I was. I was K-Kia chilling, right? And uh, I thought I was going to maybe crossover into short stories and novels. I was a big fan of Richard Wright. Actually, my English bulldog is named Bigger, after Bigger Thomas, a native son. But there was a, a man named Dr. James Birdsong who introduced me to theater. And um, I was hooked. And I was hooked because unlike a novel, you really only have dialogue. You have conversation, right, to create a world. And I just read something that said, you know what, I'm not going to say it right, so I'm not going to quote <laughs> it. But it, it was talking about the importance of language and the importance of uh, communication. It said, language is reality and communication is culture. Ooh. I just read that. Let that marinate a minute. I know, right? You got to let that marinate. Nice. That's something you got to put in the fridge and leave overnight. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so, yeah, so I got hooked on theater. And then I um, started hustling theater, meaning I started putting on my own shows and pawning stuff in the house and promising my wife I would get it out, you know. And, uh, and, and another part of theater that I like and I also hate is the community aspect. That you write this thing, but you can't do it alone, right? You need the director and the actors and the audience. Yeah. So I, I think the, the communal aspect and with me being an only child, um, that is what really drew me in. And then uh, black theater specifically because there was no representation. Even here in Memphis when I got here. You know, you got seven theaters in Shelby County, and if you put all their seasons together, you had maybe four black shows in a city that's 64.7% black. And you only got four black shows out of like 100 shows. And so there's that chasm, you know, that you needed to kind of build a land bridge across. And so, yeah, that's why theater and and I just find black theater is, is so beautiful and and um, it's me. And uh, Hattie Lou has this new thing where we say we we tell, we live, we are black stories. Mm. And that's what distinguishes us from every other theater. We live the stories we tell mm -hmm. and we embody the stories we tell. Was it the diversity of the city that, that attracted you to Memphis or what, what was how did you? How did you land here in our blessing? So city? I landed here because it's my paternal side. So this is kind of uh, my ancestral ground. Um, the cost of living was one thing. I'll tell you one one thing that that really is to this day even it 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 stirs something in me about Memphis. And that is on a Sunday morning, early, maybe six o'clock, driving down East Parkway. You know, just the dips and the trees and the, I don't know, you know, it, it, it just does something to me. Memphis, to me, has this, this I don't know, this, this mystique about it. And, and it's, it's something, you know, some, sometimes people criticize that Memphis is always on the brink, but we never make it past that brink. We never jump off. I, I see it differently. I see that Memphis keeps pushing the goalposts. Hmm. we're never satisfied. And so it's like right when the goalpost gets within sight, we push it. 
And so some people may translate that into that we never score, we never make it, but we actually do. We surpass the goalpost where it was, and then we continue to go to where it is. And so that whole grit and grind, I, I really believe in. I was in Atlanta at that period where it had grit and grind, and it was at a fork in the road of either going the L.A. route or the New York route. And with me being a New Yorker, I wanted to go New York route, stay gritty, right? It lost that. Nashville has lost that grit. But here is that thing you were talking about. You know, here you can make it. You can see the mayor in Walgreens and have access to a congressman. That's that grit. You know, the soil connects all of us. We stand on the grit. Hmm. No, I mean, I think that's an excellent metaphor for the work that you do, because I, I remember going to my first Hadley show when I was, I think, in grad school. I mean, I, uh -huh. I must have been right after y'all opened because I'm. Not that young. Um, so, but I remember it, you know, it, it really had, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like buzz. Like it was just sort of like, yeah. you know, everyone in my like graduate program was like this cool new theater starting. And um, and I, I mean, I guess this is one of the joys of, of kind of being in the city for a couple of decades because you get to see what was this incredible germ of an idea get mm -hmm. this platform and then what you've done with, I mean, talk about moving the goalpost. I mean, yeah. I feel like you guys are consistently growing and that becomes, you know, and I, I know we were joking earlier. I asked, I asked like before we started, what's your exact title? <laughs> he was like founder, <laughs> CEO, but also janitor. Janet and ticket taker. Yes, um, yes. So I know that your scrappiness is very much a part of that. <laughs> uh, you're not making your life any easier. I, I no. but tell oh. us just in, in the last 15 <laughs> years, some of the milestones from, you know, obviously this amazing new building to mm -hmm. just like how you've grown and, and changed, not the mission, but the deliverable. So I'm going to give you maybe three or four milestones. So when Hattie Lou first opened, I wasn't getting paid. I had a mobile car wash business called Bendelli's Washworks. Wow. So I would go out and wash cars from like eight until noon. And then I would clean up and then go to Hattie Lou and mop and sell tickets and direct a show. Right. I didn't think Hattie Lou was going to stick until we received the Avon, Avon B. Fogelman grant from the United Way. It was the largest grant we had ever received, $20,000. And that's when I knew, I was like, man, you know, the community is investing in this, right? So, well, the, the philanthropic community. Mm. Shortly after that, this um, elderly black woman, elderly, Right. You know, black don't crack. So for me to be able to see that she's elderly, she had to be like 100. And so she came in and she made a donation. It was like 200 and something bucks. And, um, you know, wasn't a sizable donation, but I appreciated it. And she said, you don't, um, of course, I'm paraphrasing. She said, you know, you don't know how important this place is to me. And then she gave me her MLGW cutoff notice for the exact same amount. Mm. That was a milestone for me. That's when I knew that I was responsible to a community. Wow. And so that those two things were a milestone. The next one was J.W. Gibson, who I was sitting in his office and J.W. was coming to shows and just like Michael, you know, on that pontoon, you know, you want to start a black theater. JW, you want to build a building? Just like that, right? Caught me so freaking unawares that I had to say yes. <laughs> I, I didn't know what, you know, 
I got goosebumps now. It literally was that direct. Now I got in the car and I think at that time I was driving an old box Volkswagen, that heavy ass tank door that when you open and close it, it goes, <laughs> you know, so I'm in the car <laughs> and uh, my shirt is sticking to the you know seat and stuff. So I'm sitting up so I don't have this big ass sweat stain when I get back to work. And so I'm thinking about it. And so JW and I, just like Michael and I, we just started daydreaming. What will this look like? Then we did a feasibility study, and the feasibility study said we could raise $3.8 to $4 million. The theater was not supposed to be at Overton Square. This is another mile, milestone. It was supposed to be next to FedEx um, Legends Park huh. over there by FedEx House across the street from La Bonner. Uh -huh. And Carrie Hayes was with the city at the time, mm -hmm. and he asked me to talk to Bob Lowe about Overton Square. And so that's when we decided to move there. Uh, we raised actually $4.3 million and moved into the theater in 2014, June, with absolutely no debt, so we don't owe a nickel. The other milestone was this, uh, this group of Italians were touring the South, and they stopped by Hattie Lou. And I got in a conversation with one, I can't remember, and they were just interested in the idea of black theater. And uh, they contacted us, and they were out of Milan. And we end up signing a five-year contract with Spazio Teatro Noma in Milan, and we take a musical there every year. And <laughs> I know, know right? <laughs> and so that was a milestone because that, that, and when I got invited to teach at the University of Abdomen in Khartoum, Sudan, that is when Hattie Lou broke out and became international. So those are some of the milestones. Just a few of, you know, yeah. just, just some simple, <laughs> simple linear. It's that goalpost. The damn thing got feet. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is a fabulous oral history of like how things get done in Memphis. And I, I mean, I really, I mean, obviously, like most of our audience is local, but I wish that people in other peer cities in Atlanta or in Nashville, for example, could he, like how things happen here, I think is so fascinating and is it, it, it does feel serendipitous, even though it's always somebody with yeah. like, this chugging engine of like motivation and vision. So, mm -hmm. um, well, we talked a little bit. I mean, I, I would assume that a lot of this sort of international acclaim is because of, you know, frankly, how rare. Mm -hmm. a black repertory theater is. Yeah, there and are only four freestanding ones I in the country. Say, so just four in the country, obviously, yeah. like very few in our surrounding states. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm always on the lookout for not things that make, that just make Memphis great, but that like really put Memphis on the map. That's mm -hmm. like everyone's eyes can turn to us and say, what are they doing in Memphis? Like, why aren't we doing that here? And you are so distinctly one of those things. So I'm curious, like how, how does that, either motivate or defeat you. I mean, it does that, you know, I mean, there's so much pressure, obviously, on mm -hmm. like the success of this experiment. Mm -hmm. And I'm also curious, given the success of the experiment, why aren't we seeing more black repertory theaters happening in other cities? Mm -hmm. So the, 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 the motivation comes from a challenge. 
And that's by my mentor, Ruben Santiago Hudson, who Tony Award winning director and actor and movie star and all of that. And there's this little small thing up in New York, which I won't name, and they get all these stars to come through. And I was like, why in the hell? You know, how in the hell? We got this beautiful building. We're doing all this stuff. And he says, I can die to have something you'll never have. And he said, a New York address. Mm. So that became motivation. All right. How can I make our programming more attractive than what they're doing in New York to where you have to come here? It's a tall order. <laughs> it is. But hey, you know, yeah. we're doing it. Yeah. And then another thing is why there are so few. It's a couple of reasons. Um, one, you know, Memphis is the most philanthropic city in the country. So I think that's one, you know, I think the other thing is, and I'm not going to say that part, but uh, <laughs> I have to edit I was like, myself. One of the things is racism. I you know, no, that like, ain't the part I was going like, to say. That's no, I mean, you know, white guilt is alive and well in the South, you know, but I don't think Hattie Lou has necessarily been, well, we've been a recipient of it in certain, you know, rooms, but not most. Well, I hope anyone sitting at home feeling white guilt makes a donation to Hattie Lou Theater today. HattieLou.org. <laughs> right. There you go. But I, I think the other thing is that the, um, the influencers in Memphis, they dream along with you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like some of the larger foundations and corporations are just sitting there and are satisfied with the 64.7% not really having a cultural presence. They're sitting there trying to figure things out. And the reason that I believe a person donates to any nonprofit is because that person wants a change to happen. They don't have the personal capacity to make that change happen. They have the financial resources to make it happen. And so they connect with a nonprofit who can take those resources and bring about the change that they want to see. And that's Hattie Lou. People wanted to see a cultural presence. They wanted to see diversity up on the cultural landscape in the city. They Even prior to Hattie Lou, they wanted that. And so I just say the stars were aligned. And with Memphis being a city of dreamers and with, uh, with there being 64.7% people here of color who didn't have cultural representation, I think that is a unique mix that you can't find in other cities, even if they're predominantly black. You may have a city like uh, Detroit. Um, and I mean, there is a black theater up there. It doesn't have a building or what have you. And you got a lot of money up there. But I think some of the foundations up there may be okay with the status quo. And mm. I believe here in Memphis, they aren't, regardless of what some people may say. I don't think the powers that be are really happy. I think they want to reach that goalpost. Well, this is a good segue to talk about your TED Talk because mm -hmm. the, the title of the TED Talk was Raising Your cu your cu Cultural, excuse me, <laughs> Raising Your Cultural Quotient. Mm -hmm. um, so I I mean, and we're gonna we're gonna play that TED talk here in a minute. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious before we do that, my impression, and I, I think it's accurate, but it's, it's certainly just sort of my anecdotal observation, is that the Black Arts in Memphis is is expanding in really exciting ways, mm -hmm. and art that it, art and artists that I assume have always existed in Memphis are being given bigger platforms, hopefully bigger dollars from mm -hmm. these foundations and and partners. Um, so I'm curious, you know, I, I mean. My sense is that you are really the the spearhead of of this 
you know, what I would describe as a movement at this point to really both um, not just I guess what I think is so fascinating, and again, I don't have um, the context for the way this is happening in other cities, but it isn't just, as you said, like us importing artists mm-hmm. or saying like, oh, let's bring in these big, it's us really embracing the artists that are homegrown mm-hmm. and have chosen Memphis and perhaps have been here creating art for many years, mm-hmm. <laughs> who now all mm-hmm. of a sudden we're seeing, whether it be visual arts or dance or theater. So I'm just curious as, again, I'm, I'm like just assigning you like the mm-hmm. leader of this movement, but like, how does that, I mean, do you, one, do you, do you see that happening? Mm-hmm. What is exciting to you? And, and then where do you, you know, what, what's standing in the way as we continue towards being a city that really, you know, is known as a destination mm-hmm. for black artists and black culture? So it goes back to that old woman who elderly, excuse me, that gave me that donation, that responsibility. So I don't know if you have seen or know not, um, Hattie Lou has a collection of art, Mm -hmm. of original paintings. And we now have 21 original pieces. Each piece is by a local black painter. We don't get, we don't commission any painters outside of Memphis. This collection is going to make its uh, museum debut next April at the Dixon. And then it will continue to travel to other museums, telling not just the story of black theater, but also telling the story of that artistic renaissance happening in Memphis. Because while you're reading about the painting of August Wilson, you're also reading about the local painter in Memphis, Lonnie Robbins, Mm. and you're getting all of these stories. And so... You know, I don't know if I'm the the tip of the spear or what, but I do know I have a responsibility and I take that responsibility seriously. And I think the the thing that is stopping us, and this is something that I've been actively working on, which is why we commission these plays. And we don't ask for a coupon when we commission these plays. You know, we pay the artists what their work is worth, all of the actors and everybody that does anything at Hattieloo gets paid. Even if you're up there pushing the go button on the lights, you're getting paid. Uh, Memphis needs to develop a black creative class. Hmm. Black artists need to be able to make a living doing their art. It's difficult to go to a nine to five, then come home and stay up to two o'clock working on a piece of art, whether it's music or visual art or writing a play. Um, and I think the way that you do that is what Hattie Lou is doing and, and pay that person what they're worth. Now, Hattie Lou cannot move a person into, you know, 40, 50, 60, $70,000. But if you add what we're doing and what other places could do, then you are now creating this, this community of black artists. And then what happens is that you have a struggling person who's got a car wash in Atlanta, right? And they look at Memphis where they, they're, they're somebody in, in Atlanta performing and they're from Memphis. And they're like, yeah. And they're like, what do you do? Well, I'm a singer. No, really, what do you do? I'm a singer. You make a living at singing in Memphis? Yeah, that's what we do. That person moves here. Hmm. Because where? Really outside of like a New York and even not there, but Chicago or a D.C., can you make a living at your craft? If we did that, oh my goodness. Be the biggest billboard we could have for our city in the arts. You know? And people with some artists would stop leaving, thinking that, you know, they can't make it here. 
they would stay. Uh, so that's the thing that when you ask, you know, what is one of the things that's kind of keeping us? I think that the lack of a black creative class, but we are definitely in the midst of a, a, a renaissance. But the problem with that is that this city has seen numerous cultural renaissances. Mm -hmm. This isn't the first. So is this cyclic? You know, is it just going to fade out and come back around in 10 or 15 years? Or is it actually, you know, that endless era where it's just going to keep traveling? Hmm. A good, a good thing to ponder as we transition into your TED Talk. Mm. Um, I want to ask you a lot more about um, how you came to this topic because I think it's it's truly fascinating. So let's take a minute. We're going to cut to uh, Ekendayo Bandele's TEDx Memphis Talk, Raising Your Cultural Quotient. We'll see you in a minute. Can you look at me and tell what I am made of? Can you tell my ingredients? It's kind of like that, that nursery rhyme song, what are boys made of? Frogs, snails, and puppy dog tails. That's what boys are made of. Always hated that song. Because the girls are made out of sugar and spice and everything nice, and I'm made out of that junk. <laughs> anyway. Can you look at me and tell my ingredients what I am composed of? It's actually a rhetorical question. I'm glad none of you all tried to answer. It took me a while to come up, up with this lead-in. Anyway, the recipe of Ekendayo Bandeli would contain things like Spike Lee movies, Chance the Rapper, a grilled skate with charred asparagus over a bed of stone ground grits at Wisteria. That's a restaurant in Atlanta. Mont Blanc pens, the New Yorker. Toni Morrison, Bob Marley. Playing spades with my family. My eldest daughter, Heshepsut, plays the game like she invented it. My youngest daughter, Olaremi, her homemade cards. Black coffee and oatmeal. Top Chef, love that show. John michel Basquiat. Those are some of the things that make up who I am. Those are my ingredients, my personal culture. We all have that, a personal culture. It communicates things about ourselves to people, things like our level of education. Well, that may be a mis little misleading with me, seeing as I never got above my sophomore year in college. But if you were to look at my experiences and my library, it would suggest that of a, of a doctorate at best, or a worldly man at least. Anyway, we all have that personal culture, and we have a culture that we share with other people. People from the same country as we're from, from the same socioeconomic class, from the same race, me. I am an African-American Gen Xer. And so the recipe of that, those ingredients include things like prints, um, plain dominoes and a haze of barbecue smoke in the backyard, HBCU homecomings, long church services, <laughs> a tribe called Quest, Freaknik at Hotlanta. <laughs> I could run into any African-American Gen Xer, and more than likely, we have a couple of those cultural characteristics in common. It's our culture. Culture. It's such a loaded word these days. There's a public debate going on about culture. Some Southerners are saying that 
Confederate monuments are part of their culture, while in the Midwest, Native people are defending burial grounds that they say is part of their culture. Culture is simply defined as the arts and other manifestations of human intellectual achievement regarded collectively. How's that for a sophomore year education? So, in 1965, there was a play, Douglas Turner Ward, A Day of Absence, opened on Broadway. It's a satire about a uh, fictionalized southern town where all of the black people suddenly disappear. I mean, the athletes, the professionals, everybody, poof, gone. The, the white mayor goes to the airwaves and he begs everybody, come back home, come back home. Now, when we think of our culture, have you ever thought about measuring your cultural quotient? Actually trying to assess those ingredients. We all know of such a thing as an intelligence quotient, that's our IQ, it assesses our brain power. And then we, some of us know about our EI, our emotional intelligence. That measures how we regulate our emotions and those around, people around us. But what if your cultural quotient, your CQ, why is it even important for you, for you to be able to ramble off a list of your ingredients? I mean, many of us don't even know what our IQ is, and we don't walk around measuring our feelings, so we don't know even what our EI is is. But if we're not aware of our cultural quotient, our CQ, it may cause our life issues, problems. For instance, imagine with me that play, A Day of Absence. What if all the black people in the world suddenly just disappeared? All the black people from then and now. We have to ask ourselves, would there be a Celine Dion without a Diana Ross? Would there be an Elvis without a Chuck Berry? Would there have been a Colonel Sanders without my grandmama's cast iron fried chicken? <laughs> what would our cultural quotient be? I grew up in the era of rap. I myself was a rapper. My name was K-Kid Chillin'. Don't ask me where I came up with that moniker, but that's what I called myself. Anyway, I remember sitting out on the stoop with some friends listening to the boom box and I heard this rap that mentioned a man named Richard Wright. I didn't know anyone named Richard Wright. I'd never heard of Richard Wright. Is he some hip-hop guru living up in the Bronx? So I decided to investigate and I actually investigated in my eighth grade Spanish class. There I was in class with my nose pressed in the book of Richard Wright's Black Boy, completely ignoring what the teacher, Mrs. McDonald, was scribbling on the board. I actually didn't hear her call my name again and again and again. I ended up being suspended. My mom grounded me. She took my copy of Black Boy and gave me the Bible in its stead. But I have to ask myself, would I have been kicked out of school? Would I have been relegated to my bedroom with only the words of the prophets? If my mother and Mrs. McDonald were aware of such thing as a cultural quotient. My literary curiosity flatlined until I attended Tennessee State University in Nashville. 
It happened in my sophomore year, which was my last year of college. Well, that's not entirely accurate. I did transfer to Morehouse, but that didn't stick. Anyway, in my second year, um, a man named Dr. James Birdsong gave me a, a little book. It was a collection of five black plays. That book resuscitated my cultural expansion, and it did so at a most critical time. I mean, like most black kids that were born and raised in the 70s, we grew up in the shadow of a mountain that was white culture. There's Shakespeare, there's General George Custer, there's George Washington, there's the Founding Fathers. There we are, growing up in that shadow while being taught that our own culture was less than 100 years old, and that it was a molehill in comparison. But that little book and my brief time at Tennessee State University, it set me on a cultural quest of self-discovery. I started to write plays. I started to help people with their plays. I started to read black intellectuals, people like Ivan Van Sertema. Dr. Francis Cresswellsing, Dr. Youssef Binyakinen. I was one of those brothers out on the yard with dreadlocks, smelling like patchouli, listening to Public Enemy, sporting red, black, and green paraphernalia. But even then, my cultural quotient wouldn't allow me to just confine myself to the bounds of an African-American Gen Xer. And that's what we do, isn't it? those of us with the flame of curiosity still burning in our chests, we go outside of ourselves to explore different things. I remember a friend of mine visited my dorm room. I had two posters on the wall, one of Malcolm X and one of William Faulkner. And my friend was like, bruh, what's up with the white dude on your wall? And I was like, bruh, say what you want, but that white dude can write. Have you read Absalom, Absalom? And, and that was the point. Steps along my cultural quest. I mean, Faulkner led me to Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison led me to Gabriel Garcia Marquez. There I was at the university where my focus was supposed to be my intelligence quotient, my IQ, but I was steadily developing my cultural quotient, my CQ. And it makes you ask, what about those kids who try and try and try again at college? And it just doesn't seem to stick. We try so hard because college is the natural progression after high school. We get in, we end up dropping out like I did. Some of us feel like failures. Sometimes we feel dumb because we couldn't hack it with the books. But we're out there hacking it at something. It may not be our IQ. It could be our CQ or even our EI. And why should my understanding of applied mathematics be valued more than my understanding of Don Quixote or my ability to write a play and let you into my world as an African-American Gen Xer? Culture. We're at a very important time of our history right now. There is a uh, term being used. It's called the browning of America. 
It is the phenomena in which American minorities will soon become the American majority. The advent of President Barack Obama and that of his successor, Donald Trump, it has aimed a magnifying glass on American culture. We recently had white supremacists marching and chanting, you shall not replace us. And you know what? They're right. We will not replace them. But if they could set aside their fear, their anger, what, their angst, whatever it is, and replace it with the beauty of cultural expansion, we can add to them. Think of it like this. Flour, oil, celery, onions, peppers, sausage, shrimp. Those things are just ingredients. But when they come together, they become something that they couldn't become on their own. Gumbo, Toni Morrison, Spike Lee, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, those are my ingredients. And we as a nation have been adding ingredients to our pot for the last 100 years. Think of it. At the turn of last century, there were no black or brown people on Broadway. And if they were in film, they were in film as derogatory stereotypes. But by the 1950s, you had a brown person a Cuban, Desi Arnaz, starring in one of our country's most beloved sitcoms, I Love Lucy. At the same time, Lorraine Hansberry's play, A Raisin in the Sun, it opened on Broadway. Right now, Lin-Manuel Miranda is redefining American musicals with his musical, Hamilton. We are exploding, culturally speaking. Where there was just one mountain, there are now dozens. African-American culture is a mountain. Hispanic culture is a mountain. Native American culture, Pacific Islander, Asian. We are witnessing a cultural seismic shift. But are we pulling ourselves away from our computer screens, our tablets, and our phones long enough, not just to witness it, but to participate in it. We all know that having a low IQ could make it difficult for you to get that job that you want. Having a low EI could set you on an island where you don't want to be around people and people don't want to be around you. But what about your cultural quotient? What's the danger of having a low cultural quotient? Think about it like this. If you're only familiar with uh, uh, classical ballet, you may look at the dance form known as jukin and think of it as an amateurish counterfeit instead of a bona fide art form. We stunt the growth of our cultural selves when we deny experiences in other cultures and with other people. I don't think any of us would subject ourselves to the reality found in Douglas Turner Ward's play, A Day of Absence. And so I challenge all of us to not only become aware of our CQ, but to work at expanding it. Listen to Beethoven instead of Garth Brooks. Visit a synagogue during the high holy days. Why don't you record and binge watch later Greenleaf, so that you can tune in to Vikings. 
Read Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Read Alexander Solzhenitsyn and discover the gulags in Russia. I promise you, both your head and your heart will thank you. Thank you. All right, we are back. Uh, just a reminder, you are right now tuning in to Meanwhile in Memphis. We are a weekly program on WYXR Radio coming to you every Tuesday morning at 8 a.m. Uh, we are also available available anywhere to listen to as a podcast beginning at 9.01 a.m. on Tuesdays. So let's get back to the show. We have Ekendayo Bandley in mm -hmm. our studio today. He is the founder and president of founder and CEO, CEO yeah. excuse me, <laughs> and, and janitor and ticket taker and director and actor of Hadaloo Theater. We just listened to his TED Talk. So my first question is, how would, I mean, we obviously you touch on this in your, your TED Talk, mm -hmm. but how did you come to this notion of a cultural quotient? And like, what does that mean to you specifically? So, you know, being born and raised in the hip hop era, that was, you know, what I knew. That was Mama Lou. But then when I started reading, you know, uh, Toni Morrison and Richard Wright, it moved me into William Faulkner. Then it moved me into Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And then, you know, different music, you know, I moved from reggae into jazz and then uh, curiosity of food, curiosity of fashion, uh, chess. You know, when I was reading Nabokov, you know, chess was <laughs> in there. So I started playing chess. What this did for me, was if I'm in a museum and I meet a rich person, I have something to talk about. Doors are open because I'm culturally enriched. So a smart person just with a high IQ can really be inept and not really have anything to talk about. I mean, if you got somebody who studies the hell out of butterflies and nobody really knows what the hell, but, you know, the special thing, I mean, apart from them being beautiful and they meet somebody, they really can't talk about a lot. So if you have a high cultural quotient, it actually increases your intelligence and your emotional capacity. And it, it, it expands your, your sphere of um, community. And so just having a high IQ doesn't really open you up to the beauty and the diversity of life in the world. However, having a high cultural quotient, it opens up so many doors. And the only way that you feed or expand or increase your cultural quotient is by being curious. You know, mm. I read Toni Morrison and I wanted to know who, who influenced her. Well, that was William Faulkner. Then I wanted to know who else William Faulkner influenced, and that was Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Alessandro Barrico in, in Italy. So that's why a cultural quotient is important, I think. It, it, it's not a real thing, but hopefully someone will see that brilliant black guy on there talking about it. And I, I thought his ass was handsome, hey. too, when I watched oh, it. Oh, you look great. I was going to say, I mean, this is an audio-only you know, format, but if you haven't seen Ekendile give this TED Talk, he looks sharp, man. I'm going to make a mask, and I'm going to walk around in it and say I'm Ekendile. <laughs> so, but no, you know, that cultural question, I think, is is very important to increase in the quality of life. Excellent point. And again, yeah, I mean, like going back to your, your kind of previous statement um, earlier in the show about 
the value and importance of stories and storytelling and what that does for us. And mm-hmm. I, I do think that it's so deeply attached to, or at least the way that I like perceive empathy and like how, you know, like understanding how to interact with the world and sort of understanding other people's experiences is it happens so naturally and personally and intimately mm-hmm. through these stories. And I think as we talk about a black repertory theater and mm-hmm. telling the stories of black people and being a white person, um, I'm like, it's such an important way i think for people to understand other experiences Mm -hmm. and i wonder as you are selecting plays that y'all put up or Mm -hmm. stories that you are telling how i mean i i i I assume there's a sense of responsibility to communicating some of these narratives to help give people a window into what not just historic experiences are like but what a contemporary life is like as a black american as a black memphian Mm -hmm. um i'm I'm not that's not a very good question but i'm just curious no 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 it's interesting about you know, how you guys, I mean, the role that y'all play in helping people build a cultural quotient, mm-hmm. I guess, is sort of my my key question. How, how do you approach that? So, you know, I, I look at myself as curating a season mm. as opposed to just putting a season together. And, you know, a little while ago, you know, we announced our 15th season, which opens this August. And just quickly going through it, you know, we have Jeffrey Owens, who played Elvin on The Cosby Show, doing a Shakespeare show. Wow. So that's all about how do you see Shakespeare through a black lens? Mm -hmm. Then you got this musical, Marie and Rosetta, and Rosetta Tharp was the inspiration behind Elvis Presley and Jimi Hendrix. She played rock and roll guitar spirituals, and she used to do that dance with that Nia thing that Elvis picked up on. Then we have a juke joint Christmas and, you know, holiday juke joint. I think that's, yeah, holiday (laughs) juke joint, which I can see. I can't remember the damn title. (laughs) And so, you know, it's all about that backwoods place where you just have fun and you're drinking out of a mason jar. And, you know, then we got uh, Katori Hall, you know, Mm -hmm. who's played the mountaintop. And she's from here. And it's about King. So we're bringing that. Then my play, which was commissioned by the Map Fund out of New York, uh, called Tumbling Down, which is about Take Them Down 901 and the removal of the Nathan and Bedford Forest statue. Then when we were talking about getting people to come to Memphis, uh, having Grammy-nominated Angie Stone, the singer, uh, make her theatrical debut at Hattie Lou, and um, she's playing Billie Holiday for us. And then we're closing with a show that no black theater that I've ever heard of has done. And that is the Broadway version of Porgy and Bess. And so you look at all of that and you look at things that Hattie Lou is doing. Again, that's that goalpost having feet. I was like, let me amend my previous statement. I'm like, founder, CEO, janitor, ticket taker, actor, director, playwright. Um, That's exciting. So. I, I now and now that you've said that, I do remember when that news broke that you were commissioned to do this. Yeah, what a fascinating. I mean, tell me about that process. That's fascinating to me. Well, you know, the thing is, is that Memphis has so many great stories, and um, you they they just pass away. They for black people, they go into oblivion. And right now, I'm writing a new. Well, I'm doing research on a new piece. Um, it's titled Brown Verses, verses as in like hip hop or spoken hmm. word, because it's going to be about verses. But the thing is, it's about the Memphis and Shelby County school merger. So if you look at the title, it's like Brown versus Board of Education. Mm-hmm. And so I'm talking about that merger in this, in this city. And that's what I'm doing is telling these important Memphis stories. Mayor Harrington has a story. He's the first black mayor. 
you know, uh, do we even remember that? <laughs> you yeah. know? And so uh, that's something. So when I wanted to write about hashtag take them down 901, uh, this foundation in New York was like, man, that's that's a good story. Uh, taking down, you know, the statue of this guy who did the massacre of Fort Pillow, who sold enslaved black people right here on Auction Street. It's a strong story. But the interesting thing, and when you come see Tumbling Down, the story is not about Nathan Bedford Forrest. The story is about the effects of his presence in the city hmm. or the absence thereof. It's interesting, too. I feel like that could be deemed controversial, if you will. Oh, hell yeah. And so um, something you talked about in your TED Talk was about how people can be fearful of having their kind of cultural norms questioned mm -hmm. or changed at all, mm -hmm. but that it doesn't have to be. One of my teachers in college said, she was a cultural studies teacher, she said that your culture is like a, wa a full water glass. So to absorb something else, you have to pour some of yours out. Hmm. Which I feel like you like say that. the opposite, though. In your TED Talk, you were saying you don't have to erase some of yours. Mm -mm. You can add to it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We can just keep overflowing with this culture. Throw that cup out and get a bucket. You know? yeah, yeah, and I like, yeah, because, I mean, there's no way to talk about Hashtag take them down 901 without talking about not necessarily Nathan Pepper Forrest, but the 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 uh, community that surrounded him in 1905 or that statue going up. You right. know, you can't talk about it. So I'm not erasing Southern history. Mm -hmm. I'm actually incorporating it and showing the, you know, showing it through a different lens, just like Jeffrey Owens is going to show Shakespeare through a different lens. I'm showing this moment, um, you know, through a different lens. And the evolution of a similar narrative, I guess, if you will. Like if you were to have talked to people in 1905, some pe somebody was excited to see it. There were people that were excited to see it's, that go up and yeah. were excited to see it come down. And so- And see, that's the thing to you're going to love of this play is that it takes place both in 1905 and 2017. Hmm. So it is about what was it like right before the statue was going up? And what was it like right before the statue was coming down? And then what was it like right when the statue went up? And then what was it like right when the statue came down? And it's an interesting ships crossing in the night type of story. I'm happy with it. I can't wait to see it. Well, I can know I could literally talk to you all day. And I, I know. <laughs> and what we've well established in this episode is that you have a lot to do. So <laughs> I will not keep you longer. Uh, thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. you. Thank you for being with us today and sharing your time. Before you go, you've shared a lot of amazing things about what Hadaloo is doing, what this amazing new season has to offer. Mm -hmm. How can people learn more, buy tickets, make a donation? So hatilu.org, H-A-T-T-I-L. Or if you Google Black Theater Memphis, we pop up. Right. You know, and so I just have to say before I leave, I am in love with the moniker Girl Boss. <laughs> I'm just saying, I've been staring at it and I'm like, damn, I would wear that on a t shirt <laughs> with, your, with your face Ask up on it. You shall receive. <laughs> we will make that happen for you. Uh, but it's been fun. It's been so great to see you. Thank you for all of your amazing work and we hope to see you soon. Thank you. All right, that does it for this week's episode of Meanwhile in Memphis. We are here every Tuesday morning at 8 a.m. on WYXR Radio. Thank you to our friends at WYXR for giving us this fabulous platform. 
You can also uh, re-listen to this episode, or you might be listening to it now as a podcast, which gets released every Tuesday morning at 9.01. Not an accident, I (laughs) I know. So clever. We are. We we pat ourselves on the back every time we talk about it. Um, So thank you. Thank you for listening. Uh, Anna, anything else that our listeners need to know before we say goodbye? Um, just that if you liked what you heard today and you want to kind of follow along with us literally, you can check us out on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and or LinkedIn, and you can see what we're up to on a day-to-day basis. So we highly encourage you to When is of us going to launch our uh, TikTok account? Let's... Yeah. <laughs> Anna just looked at me with terrified. I'm gonna... I can't see most of her face because she's wearing a mask, but her eyes said it all. Yeah. <laughs> which gonna... was, please don't make me do that. I'm going to leave that. Um for the next generation or the interns perhaps <laughs> that's I a mean, great idea yes great summer intern project speaking of interns i will quickly call out it is summer here in memphis as i'm sure you are feeling uh in a sticky way as you are outside today um that means that you might have college interns in your company in your organization or you might know a college student maybe one of your kids they're home for the summer they're here in memphis Please go to newmemphis.org, get them involved in our launch summer experience. It is a series of free events for college students. It is a fabulous way for them to go out and explore Memphis, meet other collegians, and hopefully meet Memphis and local companies that might employ them one day. So that is our final plug. Thank you for joining us today, and we will see you next week. Bye. Meanwhile in Memphis is brought to you in partnership with WYXR. Produced by New Memphis and hosted by Anna Mullins Ellis and Christy Mullen. For more information, please visit newmemphis.org. Audio for this show is recorded and produced by the OAM Network. For more information, please visit pod901.com.